What do you think when you hear the word wall? I'm not making fun of Mark. How you guys doing this morning? God's good, amen? Amen. amen. We are in a series called The Wall, week number two. Uh, we're going through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, it's an amazing book. It, it's so packed, it's so filled. Uh, there's actually so many different perspectives that you can kind of look at the book of Nehemiah and, and glean stuff from. Uh, a lot of people use it as a leadership book. You know, how, how to lead, how to prepare to lead, uh, how, to, how to find God's wisdom, so many things. If you, if you just Googled Nehemiah, one of the first things that would come up would be about leadership. Another lens that you can kind of look through it um, is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Nehemiah's name means God is my comfort. My consolation is in God. God is my comfort. And that's one of the, the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit, of just being alongside of us, to be a friend, to go through life with us, to whisper in our ear, to, to speak truth to us. And this is part of, of what we're going to see in the journey of Nehemiah, that, that he's very in tune with the voice of God. He's very willing, he's very eager to talk to God and to listen to God. He esteems God's word, and he knows that God esteems his word. There's a place in the word, I, I was looking for it, I, I can't remember exactly where, I, where to find it, but it says that, that God esteems his word even higher than his own name. You can take his name in vain, you can say whatever you want about him, but his word is going to remain true. He's going to make sure that the things that he says, he's going to be faithful to. He esteems his word. And Nehemiah got that about God. He saw the story of God unfolding, and he esteemed God's word. He, he knew the story of, of what was going on in his current times, uh, that his brethren, his people over in Jerusalem and Judea, and they, and they, they were in exile. They were, they were having a hard time. Uh, they'd been allowed to go back, but, but still, there was no prosperity. They were surviving. He knew that story. He didn't really know its reality, but, but he was aware that God was doing something in the world, and he wanted to be a part of it. Remember in his prayer last week, as Eric was sharing, he began to, to speak words out of Deuter uh, Deuteronomy 26, and if you look in or Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, he began to speak these words in prayer to God, back to God, reminding him of his word. Nehemiah knew God's word. He valued it. He wanted it. He listened to it. And because he knew it and because he experienced it, it brought him into a deeper fellowship with God, a deeper communion with God. And what that provoked out of his life was things like, things like courage, things like power. We look around us in the world and, and we're always looking for inspiration and we're always looking for motivation, sometimes just to get out of bed, sometimes to go to work that we hate, sometimes to, uh, to do yard work or to accomplish something great in the world like ending hunger. We look for motivation and inspiration and, and how many places do we find motivation and inspiration and perspiration and, and purpose and, and passion and and yet, in all of those places, 
many of them starting well, few are actually finishing the race. Few are actually completing what they started and getting to the place of, of being able to present something and saying, look what this inspiration produced. Nehemiah was a man who lived with that power and it sustained him and he accomplished something for God's people, for God, but more importantly, with God. That is the key to life, with God. It's not just about how many things we can mark off on our resume that we've done. What have we accomplished with the power of God? Nehemiah, Nehemiah agonized. Remember in his story last week as he, as he came and he got the news from his brethren. He, he heard it and immediately his heart was just broken. He experienced these, these tears where his heart was broken with the things that break God's heart. Nehemiah agonized because he saw the story, he saw the story of God's people and he knew what it was supposed to be. He knew that God had created a people to be salt and light. He knew that God had created a people to reflect his glory. He knew that God had, re- had created a people to do a wonderful work in the world, to let people know who he is, and that in that fellowship they might be whole. They might be healed. They might find a new way of life. And yet, at the same time, Nehemiah saw right in front of him the reality of God's people. The reality of the story that was unfolding. Because the story of God's people at the time wasn't the story of reflecting God's glory. It was the story of idolatry. The same idolatry that had brought them into exile for 70 years. Just simply being able to focus on things. Making things in daily life more important than their relationship with God. Going through life focused on their wants instead of their true spiritual need as defined by God. You need me. You're created for fellowship with me. I wonder how long does it take for our souls really, I mean, to get disconnected with God. We come to to a place that is meant to build up our our faith. And we sing songs together and we worship. And and I bet there's, there's people in this room right now that say, I have experienced God. I have felt the presence of God. Maybe God even spoke something to you to encourage your heart. But what's the distance between that experiencing the living God and and his power in your life and then being focused on other things, walking away? And I I know it's an intangible thing to ask because it ebbs and flows with our focus. It ebbs and flows with the intentionality in which we seek out the living God. We run after Him. We seek communion and live in communion with Him. And so we might walk out of here and not even take God with us. Or we might walk out of here and say, I will live a life of communion and fellowship with God. This is, this is kind of Nehemiah's legacy for us. In this, in this agony, in this pain, as, as he experiences that, as he goes through tears, and, and what it provokes then is worship. God, you are the answer to my pain. God, you are the answer to my questions. And what it, what it does is, is, is the pain provokes and brings forth tears. It actually brings forth more pain, too, because he can't eat. 
and, he, and he's still crying, and he, and, he, and he has this burden. He has this, this suffering. He has these tears, and they are beating with the heart of God. Now, at the end of, of chapter 1, Nehemiah is kind of finishing up his prayer. And he finishes it like this. He says, the people you rescued, he's talking to God, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Another translation says, those that fear you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Give me favor. And then he gives us this little insight. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer um, is, is something that kind of has, has historically gone through a little bit of a journey. When cupbearers first started out, is more or less you're a guinea pig. Here, drink my wine, and if you die, I won't drink after you. You know, that's kind of the cupbearer. They were ever by the side of the king, tasting the food first, making sure that his wine wasn't poisoned. You know, uh, one of the guys earlier said to me, you know, he was, the, he was one of the first sommeliers. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I guess so. You know, he, he, he made sure that the king had what he needed. And his job was to reflect to the king and, and to put forth a perception of, of what the king's future health was. He was never supposed to impose any of his own thoughts or feelings upon the king. His health, his facial expression, his personality was meant to uplift and to encourage and to and show that the king, long live the king. Blessed be the king. This is kind of where it started out, you know, service. But over the years and by Nehemiah's time, what had happened simply by probably through times of peace, long-lasting relationships between kings and their cupbearers, being constantly in the courts and hearing the things that were going on, that the cupbearer actually moved from a position of just simply the, the guinea pig servant to the place of, of advisor, of counselor, of friend. It became a place of oversight. It became a place where now Nehemiah, he's not just a guinea pig. He's not just a servant. He's not just somebody there to take the fall if somebody's trying to kill the king. But he is there actually as a friend and as a partner with the king, giving him advice. And this was a very highly prominent position. It came with great pay. We'll see later in chapter 5 that Nehemiah had a number of personal resources that your average servant doesn't have. And he gave of those things freely. But this is, what, this is what this position brought to him. And this gives us a little bit of, a, of an insight into, into who Nehemiah was because he doesn't start out Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Nehemiah, the memoirs of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, king of all of the Persian Empire. No, he doesn't start it out like that. This is, this is almost an afterthought. It's just a contextual tidbit that he kind of throws in there of why he's praying this way to God. Oh, by the way, I'm praying this way to God because I need favor with this man. I'm in, I'm in agony, and I know that if I enter his courts in this way, on this day, it will mean my head. It will mean they're going to take me out back and kill me. It's against the law 
for me to impose my own feelings, my own thoughts upon the king. God, give me favor. Rescue me. Nehemiah has this incredible humility in his position, but also in his dependency. He knows and has experienced the word of God. He's had communion with God, and it's brought him to the place of this, this courage and power in God. And as he goes through this prayer and worships God and proclaims God faithfulness and, and asks God to listen to him and confesses personal and community sin and takes responsibility and reminds God of his promises and asks God for favor, we see that this humility really truly comes out. Humility is, is a little desired trait, but it's infinitely valued, which is kind of a weird paradox. We look at people and we're like, if we identify them as humble, that's like, man, I, I wish I could be that humble. They, they just have this, this peaceful spirit about them. They have this humility that, that seems to lower my defenses and, and make me want to not take offense or be defensive. They let me be at peace with this humility. We value it, and yet how many of us are like, oh, you know what, top of my list is I want to be humble. It's not something that we usually aspire to. And for some of us, for those of us that may be caught up in, in power and control and pride, you actually despise the humble because they're just weak. Humility is an exceptional quality because what it does is it puts you in the place of dependence. Humility builds up in other people because it isn't worried about self. Humility cares extravagantly because it doesn't need to be repaid. Humility comes from dependency on a source that keeps you full, so you never have to worry about being emptied. This is the legacy of Nehemiah. This is the story of Nehemiah. And it's in this humility that Nehemiah was able to hear about someone else's reality, these, these people in Judah these people in Jerusalem where their walls are broken down, he's able to hear their story and he's able to let it impact his reality. Not just for a moment, not just for a day, not just for a long weekend, not in some kind of New Year's resolution way which, you know, 18 days later is gone with the wind. In a way that, that daily impacted him and changed his responsibilities. Changed his responsibilities and the things that he was focused on to be able to respond, have the ability to respond to the heart of God. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we kind of pick up with the story and it says, <clears throat> excuse me, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. So what's happened is at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1, you had, uh, you had him kind of showing up on the scene in the month of, of Kislev. In, in November or December, some of his brethren came all the way from Jerusalem, 900 miles, to where he was in, in Susa, the citadel in Persia, and, and, and bring him this news, bring him this story of the walls are broken down, the gates have been burned, God's people are disgraced, God's people are in shame. There is no reflection of God's glory among God's people. And now, four months later, in the month of, in the month of Nisan, somewhere around March or April, here he is 
serving the king his wine. And it says, I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Now, this kind of translation uh, makes it look a little bit like the, the king's kind of fishing. Like, Nehemiah, you know, what's going on? Tell me. But in other translations, it's actually conveyed this way. Nehemiah, you're not sick. This is nothing but sorrow of heart, man. What's going on? Now, this kind of interaction is virtually unheard of. We're talking about a servant and a king. We're talking about being in the court and being in the presence of the king when, when you weren't supposed to be sad. And to this point, Nehemiah had never failed in his duty. And so he still lived. To this point, he had, he had never been sad. He had never imposed. He had never been able to, to not control the things, that, the passions that were going on in his heart. But now on this day, for whatever reason, after four months, four months, I wonder if there were times when, when Nehemiah was sitting there just going, God, is this pain ever going to stop? God, are you ever going to relieve me of this? Why do, God, why? Why do I have to suffer like this? I know you are, but you're God. I'm just a man. I don't want to suffer like this. Stop. <laughs> I wonder if, if, he, if, he, if he thought that just after some amount of time, if he would just get to that place of numbness, please, God, just let me not care. You ever pray that? God, just let me feel numb. Just give me relief. After four months of, of suffering and struggling and crying these tears, that came from a heart broken by the things of God. He has this interaction with the king where finally he can't hide it. And he says, and the king says, Nehemiah, what's going on? I'm always amazed at, at intimate relationships. I'm always amazed that, that when people invest in each other, the safety and the security that it brings that actually breaks down barriers social stigmas, legalism. You can like pass gas in people's presence. They still love you. You can burp and it's not considered rude. It's funny. But when we get to know people, when we really care about people, those things, those things don't matter. And what's happened here is, is, is that over time, in this place of advice and counsel and intimacy, that this authenticity, in, in the rule of the court, no authenticity. The rule of the court, you are not allowed to impose your feelings and your thoughts upon the king. In this rule of, of no authenticity, suddenly, God breaks through and answers Nehemiah's prayer and gives him favor with King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes expresses genuine concern. Nehemiah, hey man, your heart is, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> What's going on? This is the kind of dynamic that should exist in our lives. If you don't have this, you're missing. If you don't have this, there's a void in your life. If you don't have people that are willing to call you on the carpet, if you don't have people that are, that are paying attention to you, that are, that are looking into you and saying, you know what, hey, you've got, you've got pain in your heart. 
and be able to help you draw lines of where it's godly pain and where you're just having a pity party. You know, um, if you don't have this, seek it out. Run after it as swiftly as you run after God because it's one of those things that is a blessing from God. It's part of community. It's part of God's design. It should exist in our close friendships. It should exist in our marriages. Nehemiah and the king, they were blessed with this, at least if only for this moment. And he says, you're deeply troubled. The dynamic was and should have been that Nehemiah was taken out back and killed, but somehow in this space, God gave him favor and they were able to transcend that. But Nehemiah, knowing this, writes, I was terrified. And I replied, long live the king, which is a great response when your life's on the line. Long live the king. Oh, wait a second, king. I, I, I'm sad. It, not, nothing to do with you. I'm sorry. Long live the king. It's okay. I, I'm really all right. And, and for just a second there, you know, he, he reassures the king. His demeanor was supposed to reflect the future health of the king, but he finds himself unable to contain the grief, and it begins to affect his job. He had already answered the question in his mind and in his spirit. In his prayer, he calls out upon God and he asks for favor. He already knew that this was a possibility. He already knew that this pain was so great that even in that very moment, on that very day that he heard the news, as he cried out to God, he said, give me favor this day. He knew this was a reality, that this was something that, he, that might happen. His, his concern and the brokenness of his heart and his care for the things of God might affect his standing in the world. Might make him suffer at his job. Might actually even bring him death. But that was the amount of passion that he had. And so in this preparation, in this reliance upon God, in this knowledge of God's word and, 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 and being reassured and, and, and throwing it out there, God, I need your favor and I know that you're going to give it to me, he he continues in verse 3, he says, All right, king, how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, Well, how can I help you? How many times over those four months do you think he wondered, What is the answer to this question? What resources do I have that I can send back with my brothers back to Jerusalem to begin building up these walls? What is this position of power and influence that I have that God has gifted me with that I can make this happen? What is it that I can do to fix this? How many times did he wonder that maybe, maybe just God would give him an opportunity if he waited long enough, if he was patient enough, if he, was, if he paid attention enough in the midst of this pain that possibly God would offer him an opportunity to anesthetize it and to bring about its healing. The walls are down. Walls are, are meant to, to provide protection. In that day, the walls of the city defined community and brought people into a safe place. The walls were, were meant to reflect the glory of your God. Many people worshipped many different gods. And if your walls were broken down, basically said, your God sucks. And in this time and in this day, the glory of God was not being reflected. 
we go through life and we begin to build our walls. And we know that there are certain pieces of the puzzle that we want to put in there. Hey, I, I need to build the, the wall of my life and let me put in some love and some hope and some faith and, and some fun and, and some success and, and toys. Got to have toys. And, and, well, family family's important. And then there's those things in life that we, that we don't like and there's, and there's fear and there's pain and there's... And there's tears. But I wonder how many times in, in the building of the wall of our life, the tears, they're not the tears of God. They're not tears that are flowing from the broken heart of God. They're, they're simply tears that are caused by my stupidity. They're simply tears that are called by my, caused by my, my repeated failures. By repeating the same patterns. Never growing. Never maturing. Never changing but continually living in pain. I truly believe that that is, that is not God's design for our life. You ever played Jenga? It's a horrible game. I'm a glutton for punishment, and I played Jenga by myself in front of you. Jenga's a horrible game because basically nobody wins. You're waiting to watch somebody lose. But how often is this the way that we... We live our lives. We play. And, all right, here, here it is. We go through life. We're given a, a life, and we're, and we're born with this, this missing link, right? We're missing peace, this, this sin nature, this God-shaped void. There it is. We're born incomplete. We're born in need. And as we identify that and we, we begin to see that there are things in life that bring us pleasure, that, that bring us joy, that, that for an instant, for a moment, begin to, to relax and to ease the pain and to put the Band-Aid on. And so we begin to, oh, here's a good spot here. Let me, let me take this. And, and we begin to barter and we begin to trade. And here, here's a little bit of my time. Will you give me a little bit of your money? We begin to to move and, oh, here's another spot. I can, I can trade this and I, I won't collapse. Here, here's a little bit of my energy. Will you give me affirmation? Will you let me know that I'm a good person? Here, here's a, here's a really hard one here. Right at the, right at the core. Right, let's, let's, let's just strike deep. Where is it? Let me find it. There it is. Here, let me give you, let me give you a piece of my heart with the hopes You'll also give me a piece of your heart. Oh, wait. Oh, it's not really fitting. And your heart's kind of dirty. <laughs> you can have that back. And then what happens is it begins to escalate. We begin to more and more. Oh, oh I need to, oh, I'm leaning a little bit. I, I need to straighten up. Oh, no, what am I going to do? And, and more and more, I'm, I'm bartering. I, I, I find spots that I can give. And I trade my sex, and I trade my definition of happiness, and I trade success for band-aids, for temporary fixes to my pain. But there's good news. Because God's design is not for us to, to barter and, and to sell and to trade in our brokenness. Even in places where we've been robbed or and abused or abandoned. 
That as we look at ourselves and we, and we see the brokenness and we see the missing pieces, the answer is not in another person. You're never going to find another person that fits your puzzle completely because that's not the way you were designed. God is the one who cries out in his word, I will restore your soul. I will make you whole. You don't need to run around and, and try to find the missing pieces, and you don't need to barter, and you don't need to trade. You need to define your reality. You need to define what makes you complete by me. You need to seek me first. As we go through the wall, and as we're building it, with the idea of reflecting the glory of God, and we put in faith in Jesus Christ and love and hope and truth and, and get to the place where we begin to, to have our heart beat with the heart of God and we begin to cry tears that are the very tears of God, that, that somehow in this we, we still find that there's a gap. We still find that, that there's a missing piece. We still find that in, in the midst of our desire to live right, to live for God, that there's something missing. And I believe that peace is responsibility. The ability to respond. You might call it purpose. What happens when we're missing the pieces, when there's the gap? What happens when we're, when we're living a, a life just simply waiting to lose? waiting to collapse, bartering and trading, that what happens in these broken walls, that broken walls keep us from worship. They keep us from the ability to respond properly to God. They distract us and they steal our attention and, and, and our resources flow out of us as through gaping wounds. We, it's like we walk into the ER and we're just gushing saying, fix me, help me, hold me. I don't know what to do. And this is where God wants to step in and, and repair and rebuild. Because we can never be rebuilt by another person, only by our God. Nehemiah lived his life with this humility, with this purpose in such a way, focusing on God, depending upon his word, relying upon God, letting his heart be broken, crying the tears of God that, that ordered his life in a private way that his responsibilities were met, the things that he needed to do. But sometimes our responsibilities, things that we have to do, the things that seem to take up our time, us being too busy, they're, they're things that actually detract and steal away from our responsibility. Our ability to respond to God. Our, our ability in these moments where the story of God is at a cliffhanger. The ability for us to step in and say, I will stand in the gap. God, I am willing and I am to be obedient to you. I am willing to be used by you. I am humble enough to know that my life is not about me. And it's about what you desire to do in me and through me. Don't let your responsibility get in the way of your responsibility. This is the legacy of, of Nehemiah. The communion with God, a dependency upon his word, a seeking him first. 
that brought him to the place of personal health, that as he was building the wall of his life and as he was glorifying God, God brings him to the opportunity to be authentic. Nehemiah's dependency was on God, and it opened the doors in the midst of an impossible situation to unleash resources to bring healing and hope to God's people. Nehemiah probably had counted the cost many times and came up with the answer that this was an impossible mission. And yet as he faithfully and boldly, hopefully asked God for favor, he knew that God has unlimited resources, that the thoughts of the king are in the hands of God like a river to direct it where he desires to go. Nehemiah knew this. He believed this. And so the king asks, well, how can I help you? Jesus asks us the same question, and in the same moment in asking that, how can I help you, he gives us the answer to all of the questions that we have. He has unlimited resources. And so Nehemiah responds in this, in this gesture of favor, in this unmerited favor, in this act of grace by the king. Well, how can I help you, he says in, in verse 4. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting next to him, asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Nehemiah's first response is prayer. In a moment, in an instant, when he only had a moment, when he only had an instant, prayers don't have to be long and eloquent to be answered. They have to be passionate and fervent and dependent. God, I am not and you are. God, I have not and you have. God, I don't know and you do. And in the simplicity of that confession, in the simplicity of that dependency, God gives him favor and brings forth words of wisdom that he's probably already thought about, already counted the cost and said, hey, this is, this is how, what I want to do. This is how I want to move forward. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, crying is all right in its own way while it lasts, but you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. Don't sit in agony without answers. There is a God who has answers. And if we will make ourselves available to him, he will unleash unlimited resources on our behalf to be a blessing and to be blessed. And when we do that, we will see that the answer to our prayers become the echo of the heart of God and it will give us boldness to move forward in his power, to be able to complete it, to be able to finish the race and it might even give you a little bit of extra boldness. Listen to what Nehemiah says. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. 
When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letter to them, and the king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. When God calls you into relationship with himself, when God calls you into service, he wants all of you. He wants the full expression of who you are. He wants your entire being. He wants you fully present in the moment-to-moment details of life that, that you can be intertwined with him so that you can have this perfect dance of, of power and submission, living in his power, fully submitted to him to bring forth the best parts of who he created you to be so that you can feel as he feels and love as he loves and act as he acts. He wants us to be like him. That is the story of God's people. That is the story of the Bible. That is the hope that we are being transformed, molded and shaped into the very image of Jesus Christ. But in every story, there's an enemy. Of course, we know that we have an enemy. Sometimes we wage war upon him. Sometimes we we forget about him. Sometimes we realize that the enemy, the greater enemy, is ourself. And in this story, in verse 10, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. As we construct our life and we begin to, to barter and trade and exchange pieces of our life for other things, as we, as we live very much a life of idolatry, being consumed with things and not being consumed with God, then what happens is we experience a consequence of our actions. Tobiah, Sanballat. Sanballat's a Horonite which come from the Moabites. Tobiah is an Ammonite. In Deuteronomy 23, God proclaims, he said, no, no Moabite, no Ammonite will ever be part of the assembly of God's righteous people. Why? Because it's about the story of faithfulness. The story of one man who said he would be obedient, Abraham, and he followed God to a, to a place that he never had seen. He followed God and said, God, where you go, I will, I will follow. Where you lead me, I will follow. I will leave my family. And along that way, his nephew Lot came with him. And there came this point of, of tension. There came this point of, of choice. There came a, an opportunity where Abraham says to Lot, hey, we're, we're, we can't really coincide together. We're just simply too large. We're too blessed. We need to find other regions to go into to be a blessing, to reflect the glory of God. And Lot says, I'm going to go over here where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. Going to Paradise City. Going to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as he lived there, he got closer and closer and closer until he found himself within the very gates of the cities. And the story goes as God desired to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, that he had to flee for his life. And in running, his wife looked back and became an idol, fulfilled her own destiny by not keeping her eyes fixed on God, became a pillar of salt. But then in the, in the, in the, in the coming days, what happened was Lot's daughters began to form this plan. 
hey, you know what? We just left these two cities. There were a lot of options for us, and now we're going to die. There's no, there's no men around. We're going to die, and our family name is, is not going to be perpetuated. So here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get our dad drunk, and we're going to sleep with him, and we're going to have kids because that's what God wants. And those two sons, those illegitimate consequences of idolatry, the Moabites and the Ammonites, that were perpetual thorn in the side of the people of Israel, who were a perpetual enemy to God's design. The good news for us is that God does say, no Moabite and no Ammonite is going to reside with the children of God. The past, the consequences, the pain, the struggle, the tears that, are, that come from your own sorrow and not the heart of God, it doesn't have to be that way. He wants to restore our soul. The question is, will we be like Nehemiah? Will we be dependent upon God? Will we be humble? Will we esteem His word? Will we find out what he has to say and will we be obedient? Are we hungry? Are we hungry for the things of God? And I think that if you find, answer that question that you are, the journey of Nehemiah is like pulling up to the banquet table. The journey of Nehemiah is, is like seeing the, the resources of God unleashed and the power of God unleashed in the midst of pain, in the midst of trial, in the midst of impossible odds. And if you have that hope, hold tight because your deliverer is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we sit in a place of dependence upon you. Whether that is the cry of our heart or not, that is your truth, that we are needy. And Lord, you don't despise that. You don't kick us while we're down. You are not the God of Jenga who is pulling out pieces, waiting us for, for us to fall and waiting for us to fail. You are the God who desires to restore and to make whole. And Lord, I pray that in this place right now that you bring hope, that you bring deliverance, that you bring up a cry of defiance, out of that humility, out of that need, Lord, that says we desire to be free and we will not settle for idolatry. We will not settle for anything less than face-to-face -face interaction. We will not settle for anything less than God with us. Lord, this cry is not our own. It is the cry that you put in us. And we ask simply that you would do that work by your Spirit again and again and again in your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your favor in the times when we are not faithful to you. Lord, help us to confess those things now and to rejoice in the freedom that you've given us. In Jesus' name.